0: Hi, I'm Andrew, and welcome to the Reviewer Two Does Geoengineering podcast. Today, I'm joined by Kyle Manley, and uh, there's a quote to open today's show: "People who get up in the more early in the morning cause war, death, and famine." By Banksy. Kyle well, has kindly got out of bed horribly early today to talk to us. It's uh, zero dark thirty where you are in Denver, Colorado. I think exactly oh uh, six forty-five in the morning. Is that correct? That's correct and it's not even light. I can see that you're, you're, you're by the light of the candles here. So, um, uh, whereas it's lovely and sunny out here in Britain at the moment, which is rare for autumn, but um, welcome to the show, Kyle.
1: Thank you, thanks for having me, Andrew. Okay, well,
0: hopefully we won't cause too much war, death and famine, but we'd like to hear more about how your work has shown us that we can uh, address uh, climate change using advanced, uh, enhanced weathering technologies and techniques so uh do you want to give us a, a brief introduction to start off with by telling us where what university you're at and what your role is at that university
1: yeah so um i conducted this research while i was an undergraduate at the university of colorado boulder i am now a phd student at the university of california irvine uh, working in dr bennis ego's lab
0: and so you're, you're still based in denver but yet you're at university of california how does that work
1: yeah so i started my uh, first semester just recently. Um, everything is online due to the whole COVID-19 situation, so my advisor suggested I stay here for now. Um, it looks like I'll be headed out to California soon though.
0: Okay, um, and I understand that the, the work that you've done has been uh, predominantly based on uh, Australia, so is that, have you been doing field work in Australia or were you based out there or was this all modelling and remote or what?
1: Yeah, so I did a um, little study abroad for one semester during my undergraduate years in Australia, and I ended up uh, collaborating with some of the professors in the geosciences at the uh, University of Sydney.
0: Okay. Um, and where in Australia is the uh, territory that you are referring to in your papers, just to get people's uh, geography appetites whetted.
1: Right. So it's... um. Half in the southeastern part of Queensland and half in the northeastern part of New South Wales. So it sort of hits the borderline right there on the coast.
0: So um, uh, is that kind of roughly halfway up Australia on the east, eastern coast? Is that right?
1: Yeah, about halfway.
0: Okay, so quite a bit north of Sydney and places like that, right? Is that Correct, quite, yeah. It, it, what's the nearest major city? Is that Brisbane up there?
1: Yeah, Brisbane is about probably 100 kilometers to the north
0: which is virtually next door in Australia.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah.
0: Um, so you, uh, you've actually published this work now, is that correct?
1: Correct. Yeah. It just got published in the uh, frontiers in earth sciences. Okay. And uh, can
0: you give us the full title of the paper?
1: Yes. The full title is modeling the dynamic landscape evolution of a volcanic coastal environment under future climate trajectories.
0: Okay. And is this your very first paper?
1: This is my very first paper published, yeah.
0: Oh, excellent. So you're, you're the second person we've got on our Losing Your Virginity series. <laughs> uh, so uh, we're pleased to bring you on and welcome you to the world of science, um, or at least that which passes for it on our podcast. Um, so do you want to give us uh, a kind of one sentence or two sentence summary of the basic premise of your paper, what you're looking to achieve?
1: Yeah, so we were looking at two separate things here. So we, first of all, we wanted to see how regionally a changing climate would impact a, a region's ability to um, produce weathering and, and thus um, sort of act as a carbon sink or a carbon source in that way. And then second, we wanted to see, so we w- we've been talking to people from Project Vesta about how they want to enhance silicate weathering um, artificially and that, and that's that's questionable because we don't know the natural weathering rate of olivine so we wanted to sort of propose this area as a natural laboratory so you could make observations to see how olivine weathers in nature
0: well, i'm very i'm quite familiar with project Vestera, and i'm quite impressed with what they've done and we've tried to drag them on the show but uh, as yet we haven't got them to commit to a date uh which is a bit frustrating so um Could you fill that void by letting us know a bit more about Project Vesta and what they do and why they do it?
1: Yeah, so one of my collaborators, Professor Dietmar Muller, he has been um, mainly talking, I think he talked to them at AGU at one point, but um, Project Vesta Vesta is looking to sort of implement these projects worldwide, adding olivine sand to beaches uh, and thus letting wave action erosion sort of do the work on the olivine and um, enhance that erosion rate, and thus enhance um, CO two uptake.
0: So, what is olivine, and where does it come from?
1: Yeah. So, olivine is a uh, silicate mineral. It's common on, in the Earth's crust, um, mainly in basalts. You want me to go any more deeper into that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, what's the chemical formula?
1: Um, the chemical formula, I believe, is magnesium iron silicate. So, Mg or f-e-s-i-o i I believe
0: okay and uh you you say that it's found in basalts i mean basalts are less common in in, um, continental uh, crust rocks than in ocean rocks Um, so where are these basalt sediments found around the world which have got high concentrations of olivine in
1: them right so a lot of volcanic landscapes have basalts um You'll find them in a lot of unweathered areas. So, we, sure. we chose this, this volcanic landscape because it's mainly consisting of basalts.
0: Okay, so when you say vol- volcanic landscapes, there are you know, two major um, uh, types of volcanoes. You get the, the, the flattish basaltic shield volcanoes, where the magma that comes out is very runny. Uh, and then you get the, um, uh, I think the other type are called strata volcanoes, aren't
1: they? I believe so. I can't
0: remember the name yeah um but they're basically much more sort of classic sort of children's book volcanoes pointy mountains with fire coming out of the top right um so does the olivine rock form in um the shield volcanoes or does it form in the uh the strata volcanoes
1: um it should form in both types of volcanoes um basalts are just lava rich magnesium and iron so um, okay. The olivine should be within both uh, landscapes.
0: So the idea of this, as I understand it, is that the um, olivine mineral um, or part, part of the olivine mineral reacts with the carbon dioxide that's either in the air or the seawater, depending on where you placed it, and uh, it gets locked up. So uh, does it get, uh, does the carbon dioxide end up in a uh, soluble mineral form or does it end up uh, in a solid uh, when it's when it's uh, reacted with the olivine,
1: so initially it's it, it reacts and it ends up in this soluble form where it um, eventually will make its way into the ocean. Is sort of the the theory, and then um, these organisms is that a bicarbonate ion or
0: what? Yeah,
1: bicarbonate ion um, and yeah. calcium, and okay. it, and these organisms will utilize that to um, you know make their exoskeletons or their shells and whatnot. Um, okay, and, and eventually so, they so end once
0: the carbon so once the carbon um, dioxide has reacted and formed this bicarbonate iron, uh, can you give us an idea of the time scale over which it's locked up for? I mean, does it, does it take it out of circulation for a decade, a hundred years, a thousand years, 10,000 years, a million years? What? Yeah,
1: so I mean, once, once these organisms utilize them and then they die and then they sink to the bottom of the ocean to become um, these sediments and, and eventually um, sometimes they'll, they'll be pushed above the sea level depending on different tectonic reactions or sea levels so so my understanding really
0: of it is, that when when the shell when when marine animals formed shells then they ejected carbon dioxide in in the process of doing that they dissolved carbon dioxide back into the water column when when they form their shell uh, do i misunderstand that
1: yeah so the way this works is um CO2 reacts with water and becomes a weak acid, um, carbonic acid, which then reacts with uh, the olivine and creates a uh, bicarbonate ion and uh, some calcium, um, which then uh, washes out to the ocean and these marine organisms end up using them. And um, in that way, it frees up room within the ocean for uh, more CO2 intake.
0: I've 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 learned this stuff, you know, probably twenty times, and I always get it wrong in my head. I can never quite get my head around the ocean carbon cycle. There's some fundamental mental block I've got on it. I have to sit there with Molly mods and build little bicarbonate ions and try and work out what's going on one day to properly get it into my brain. Um, so. Your your work is about the the weathering in this um, uh, this landscape. So, what what is this landscape like? Talk talk me through. Is it a, a dry desert? Is it a you know a temperate environment? Is it a lush tropical plain? Is it a mountain range? What is like?
1: Right, right. So it's a um, subtropical rainforest mainly. Um, it's it's a coastal environment as well. So it's it's mainly consisting of this um, very ancient um, eroded caldera. Um, there's parts yeah. that
0: so what's a caldera for those who are less familiar with volcan- volcanology?
1: Yeah, so it's it's a basically it's an ancient volcano that's collapsed under its own weight. Um, so it forms this this outer shell, sort of almost a circle, and then in the inner cone, there's a just the what's left of the cone. Um, so it's just a large mountain in the center, with with a, surrounded by very large ridges.
0: Okay, so the. The the idea is that all of the rock and material that's in that cone is sort of blown out in a high-pressure explosive eruption. Is that right? And Correct, then yeah. It, yeah. Um, so my understanding is that the, the the explosive eruptions are less common in high basalt rocks. So what makes this an explosive eruption if it's got rocks that are predominantly basalts?
1: Um, you know, it's a good question. I'm not necessarily a... <laughs> Uh, you're not know, an expert in volcanology or anything okay, yeah so.
0: well, well we'll maybe have to um get someone on the show to chat about the details of that so you've got this landscape and it's a collapsed caldera in a rainforest and it took me through some of the other geographical features of the landscape so where where is the rain coming from is it from um uh ocean uh, air with orographic uplift or is it mainly um inland um uh weather systems that are coming out and, and, and drenching this area, what how 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 does it become so wet?
1: Yeah, so it's it's a naturally very hot environment, so there's a lot of um water vapor in the air already, and because it's on the coast, um this uh, this water this, So it's a uh, prevailing
0: wind coming from the sea, right? So yes, got hot correct. wet air. Okay, fine. And and so the, the I guess you've got a mountain range so you've got orographic uplift. You've got the air coming in off the sea. Correct, yeah. Um in a, it's humid um air and it's been driven up the mountains by the shape of the terrain as it rises it cools and it rains out on the mountains so you've got this constant drenching effect of these weather systems come in from the sea and go over the mountain ranges right
1: right yeah it's a very wet environment
0: okay so this is like pretty much the kind of classic you know high weathering environment right correct yeah so could you give me a bit more information about how the volcano um, system formed
1: yeah so um the plate that um australia is on is uh moving northward so as that plate moves north was it area... part of
0: antarctica originally
1: um yeah i believe so gondwana i believe it was called um okay. yeah and so as this plate moves forward it, there's a um actually a volcanic hotspot um that forces magma up um at weak spots and so it's a little bit different from the Hawaiian islands because they so a have hot
0: spot is like um, when you've got a convection heater and you've got a, a thermal element in the convection heater uh, that's driving a plume of warm air up to the ceiling of your room right yeah
1: exactly so as that plate moves north it starts um, it, it it runs over that hot spot and at weak spots um, it can force magma up and uh, so, create these so
0: volcanoes. why is it why is it at the coast because normally the volcanoes at the coast are in subduction zones so what how come you've got this hot spot that happens to be on the coast did it not cause did it cause eruptions elsewhere in australia as the um as the australian plate or plate slid over the top of uh this hotspot, or did it only cause eruptions in this particular place
1: yeah so it's it's caused um eruptions all over Aust- eastern australia so up from the Northeastern Australian Queensland down um, all the way to Tasmania. So it's just, it's it's just how
0: Hawaii is formed, right? So you've got an island chain in Hawaii that's been formed as this, um, as the ocean plate has moved over um, a hotspot or the hotspot has moved a little bit under the ocean plate. I can't remember exactly how the process works. Um, uh, But, but what you've got is the volcano sort of bursting through the continental crust. Is that how it works?
1: Yeah, that's exactly how it works. It's a little bit different from Hawaii. Um Hawaii just forms a single chain of volcanoes, whereas this um, hotspot is sort of taking advantage of any weak spot in the in the crust and so it forms um just random all over eastern Australia. Um it's not a single
0: uh, Okay, so the, the, the you have to you got it's a combination of crustal weakness and the hotspot that causes the bursting through. Yeah? Correct, yeah. Okay, fine. So um, it's not a neat line of holes like you might get with Hawaii when, when the ocean cross is a lot thinner, right? Right. Um, okay. Um, so these mountains, what what's the uh, you know the rough uh, altitude of the peaks?
1: Um, yeah. Are, so are we talking
0: Mount Mont Blanc, or are we talking you know a few hummocks, or what?
1: Um, I believe so. The largest. Uh, point within the area is is called Mount Warning. It's the uh, what's left of the cone in the center. Yeah, I believe it's about a thousand meters high, but all the other so surrounding just sli- that's
0: just slightly taller than Ben Nevis in the UK, right?
1: I'm not Tault sure. But maybe.
0: <laughs> yeah, a thousand a thousand meters high is about the height of the tallest mountain in the UK. I think.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, in in the surrounding uh, caldera walls are all about similar heights.
0: Okay. Very fine. Dramatic, yeah. um, so, in in terms of the, the sort of environment, you've got something which looks a little bit like um, a water splashing up out of a raindrop that's hit a puddle. So you've got the kind of the ring, and then you've got the the middle bit that bounced up from where the raindrop went in. Right, so you've right. got a flat area with a circle around it, and then a little dot in the middle. Right. Yeah, that's
1: a good analogy.
0: Okay. And and this olivine. So you've got, you've had you know fifteen million years of weathering or thereabouts that have occurred in this environment so there's been a lot of opportunity for these rocks to be broken down by direct um, uh, you know physical action from the weathering so the impact of raindrops on the soil and then you'll have things like worms and roots and stuff that have acted to break up the rocks so you'd imagine that you'd get a pretty thick soil building up in this basin so is the inside of this basin drained or is it trapped does it does it have a lake in the bottom of it how talk, talk me through the geology yeah, of it
1: it's um it is very drained it's it's uh, largely a floodplain that just drains into the the coastal environment there is so some, some, agriculture some kind of in the there, ridge
0: so. right there's, some, there's a gap somewhere in that ridge and allows right. yeah
1: flow out right okay. yeah so it, it's mainly a, a circular Caldera, but at the eastern side that uh, drains into the ocean, it's all open, so it's it's just okay. straight into the ocean, like
0: a smashed saucer. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you've got this. Uh, uh, initially you'd, you'd have had uh, just a volcanic regolith, right? You've got bare rock, um, and then over the intervening period of you know fifteen to twenty-five million years, approximately you'd have had a significant program on weathering. So uh, uh, talk, talk me through the, the soil strata. So have you got, um, a very, very thick, uh, soil layer, or is it a thin layer of soil over solid rock? And then the, the rains wash away the surface rock. How talk me through how the, the soil profile is built up.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's a very highly vegetated area, which also helps with weathering. Um,
0: it's like a so, rainforest, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the soil is, 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 I wouldn't say, very thick. Um, mainly... rainforests,
0: are, rainforests are characterized by latter soils, aren't they? So they, they have very um, highly um, dilute So the, the minerals are diluted away from the rainforest soil. So you have quite thin soils with very poor nutrient profiles. They're not like the humus-rich soils that you get in uh, temperate zones. Right, so is yes. this quite a, an impoverished soil when you dig down through it or what?
1: Yes, yes, that's correct
0: okay so typical rainforest soil mm-hmm. not very fertile you know very high levels of transport of ions out in dissolution uh and the the richness of the vegetation comes primarily because you don't have light limiting and you don't have water limiting because you're in a hot tropical environment right correct yeah okay so give me an idea of the the depth of the soil so you if you were to draw a uh, soil profile how how long would it be before you get down to the volcanic bedrock are we were we talking you know five meters or 300 meters or what
1: yeah in some areas um it really depends so it, it's going to be about three or four meters likely um before you hit bedrock
0: okay so you'll think you're you're painting a picture here of a uh, of a volcanic bedrock which was very long established that had been essentially ground away by this process of weathering right over right. a period of time. And so you don't have a huge accumulation of soil on top of the bedrock. You've got a few meters of soil sitting on top of the bedrock and, and that bedrock is being ground away steadily. Do you have a, can you give me an idea of the, the, uh, progress of the soil horizon? I mean, are we looking at weathering rates of a 10th of a millimeter a year, a millimeter a year, 10 centimeters a year what where are we roughly
1: so there are there are more eroded parts of the caldera towards the eastern edge and then towards the western edge you still have these less mature less eroded areas so you're going to get deeper soils and more and more erosion in these areas uh, okay but point, but, yeah.
0: but the, let's look at the erosion rate so not i'm not i'm not talking now about the soil profile depth i'm talking about the erosion rate so are we losing Fractions of a millimeter a year, or are we losing you know centimeters a year, or where are we roughly on that uh continuum in terms of the erosion rates in terms of millimeters per year of that yeah, bedrock so, that's being
1: lost? So, um, I, I, I'm not aware of any actual observations of this, but our model shows that it would be um uh centimeters a year,
0: so the centimeters a year of bedrock. I mean, you're thinking the bedrock, it's uh, volcanic lava is it's not the hardest rock is it but it's not no. a it doesn't crumble when you pick it up like chalk does, right so right. It, it's a relatively robust rock you build a house on it and you're getting through centimeters a year of this i mean that's quite a lot right i
1: mean pro- tens of centimeters or so but um basalt is a very erodible right
0: okay and and the one thing we don't have an indication of is scale so you've got this uh caldera with a um what's the, the name of a mountain in the middle of the caldera here um, you, you gave a special name earlier but i didn 't remember it
1: uh it 's called Mount warning they call it no Mount no no warning.
0: but the na- there 's a specific name for the type of mountain that is in the middle of a caldera, right and i can 't remember what the name
1: uh i'm not sure it's, uh it was just the the old volcanic uh,
0: yeah count. but there, but you don't you don't know the the specific title for that type of mountain right well're not I oh, yeah, no. um so what's the approximate size of the caldera? I mean, are we talking you know miles across hundreds of miles across what
1: yeah, it's about um about twelve hundred meters uh, kilometers squared, so okay, very large
0: so you know of the order of thirty miles by thirty miles right yeah okay um, so that's a by caldera sizes that's a medium sized caldera, isn't it so Yellowstone would be. I think that's about a hundred miles across. That's a really vast caldera, continental yeah. scale of destruction when that yeah. thing goes off. Um, so these um, these rocks, you, the, the rocks that are olivine rich, you, you've got that all the way down throughout the volcanic strata. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Okay, fine. Um, and so this is a, a you're painting a picture overall of a a medium sized um, uh, feature that. You know the size of a roughly a small english county um, that's eroding at centimeters a year its looks like a kind of empty saucer from above um, with a little mountain in the middle of it and it 's lost its eastern flank uh, which allows the transport of uh, sediments and uh, dissolved ions out to the ocean that's that's the kind of starting point is that right
1: yeah
0: so I basically understand the the, the geology okay. So your um, mission in this research was to do what
1: exactly? Yeah, so we just wanted to see how climate change will react with such an environment in, in a way that maybe it would increase uh, the potential of the landscape to sequester carbon and also just see if this would be a, a proper area to actually observe the weathering rate of in a natural environment.
0: Okay, so as climate change increases, and this isn't just through uh, anthropogenic climate change, but in deep time as the Earth's climate has varied, typically the weathering rate has been associated with warmer um, periods of time, and that's one of the ways that the Earth has remained uh, temperate and habitable during deep time, is by controlling the weathering rate. So as the temperature goes up, the weathering rate goes up because you have an enhanced hydrological cycle. And you have an enhanced speed of chemical weathering in a warmer environment and when things cool down that weathering rate slows so that's one of the ways that the earth has a kind of inbuilt thermostat to control the temperature right that's right do you understand that broadly correctly yeah yeah okay so you'd expect the weathering rate to go up somewhat during anthropogenic global warming at the moment we're you know somewhere of the order of a degree of warming and Um, we might get to somewhere of the order of two or three degrees by end century, depending on how much of a mess we make of all of this. (laughs) So in terms of the weathering rates, I mean, that, that, you know, that's quite a lot of Kelvins that you've got there. And then adding one or two more Kelvins doesn't seem immediately like it's going to make a huge difference. I mean, I would assume that weathering rates change fairly dramatically when you're looking at differences of the order of tens of Kelvin, not ones Kelvin. So, how, how much, weathering approximately, are we looking at in terms of the increase? Or, you know, you might want to deal, detail both what was known before you started your research and what you discovered during your research.
1: Yeah, so an area like this is not going to have any, any sort of substantial impact, uh, on less than 1% of what's, you know, emitted by humans yearly. So what we're looking at um, is, is maybe an increase. So well, hang on, seeing, let,
0: me just, let me just unpack that just before you go into that, because yeah. I think what you're touching on there is chemical weathering from the carbon dioxide itself. So you are talking about the concentration of climate of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. Is that right?
1: Right. Correct.
0: Okay, fine. So we didn't, t- I didn't touch on that earlier, but I just want to get into that in a bit more depth. So mm. the, the weathering comes from two components. So you've got the environmental effect in that hotter, wetter environments tend to cause more erosion. Um, obviously you get ice fracturing in um, alpine and glacial environments and polar environments but within a a temperate temperature band you typically get more erosion in the hotter and wetter environments but what you're talking about there is that you've got an additional effect in that as the concentration of CO2 rises you've also got an increase in the um, concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere we've gone from roughly 285 in pre-industrial times to You know the low 400s today so you're not that far off a doubling of co2 and therefore you'd expect that the reaction of co2 with these rocks would what perhaps be doubling roughly is that approximately correct
1: um yeah yeah well i wouldn't say doubling um but it would there would be an increase yeah
0: okay so if you're going from sort of roughly 285 parts per million to roughly 410 parts per million you're not far off doubling there are you okay so Correct. could you explain to us why the rate of reaction with the olivine doesn't um it doesn't increase proportionally is it because that the rate limiting step is not lim- is not linked to the atmospheric concentration
1: or what um it's it's mainly yeah due to due to these factors that, that this isn't going to just increase because there's increased CO2. Um, but, but mainly also what we're, we're looking at is not really, we're not looking at that sort of effect. We're looking at the supply of these, these sediments okay. into weatherable environments. Um, so the, so really the, the
0: weathering you're talking about there is that my understanding is that you've got two processes. So you've got a physical erosion process, which breaks up large chunks of rock Correct. into smaller chunks. And then you've got thereafter, you've got a chemical weathering process where, the resulting sand or rock fragments or grit or whatever dimensions it adopts then comes into contact with either carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or carbon dioxide in the ocean and freshwater courses and then reacts with the co2 so what i think you're saying there is that the rate limiting step here is the physical erosion of the rock strata and it's the, the resulting breaking up into chemically weatherable fragments. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So that's, that's mainly what we were looking at is how is the limitation of, of the, the climate, the regional climate and how that will erode these, these rocks and, and supply the okay. sediment. Yeah. So,
0: so your, so your primary focus was on the physical erosion, not the chemical erosion.
1: Correct. Yes.
0: Okay. And so what you're saying there, as I understand it, is that as the climate becomes, hotter, the hydrological environment becomes more um, more energetic. There's more rain and the, the weather systems themselves are more energetic. So you might yep. get larger storms, um, you know, higher ballistic energy from the water droplets because you might get larger dro- rain droplets falling in storms or, you know, more frequent heavy rain as opposed to lighter drizzle. Um, and all of those factors together plus um, potentially increased plant growth will act to, grind up these rocks in a more effective fashion is that is that broadly what you're talking about
1: yes correct yeah so could
0: i ask you to touch on the plant growth because the uh, one of the effects of plant growth um or, or effects on plant growth is that in a higher co2 world they're not getting any more energy from sunlight um but they are um they have they are less thirsty because their stomata uh, are not open as much the the pores on the bottom of the leaves are not Free, as frequently opened or as opened as far to let the necessary CO2 in, because the CO the air and the CO2 is richer, and therefore it slows down the evaporate evapotranspiration um, of water, and the soil moisture increases. So typically, you you have a greener you have greener soils with um, in. We're certainly in tropical environments. You you would have typically more groundwater um, and more rain, and so that you you the more tropical environments get more tropically and desert environments might get hotter and drier. So what is what you're projecting here under climate change a more tropically environment?
1: Yes. Yes. So this is a subtropical environment, but it will get more tropical. Yes.
0: <laughs> okay. So you, are looking at more rainfall, more intense yeah. storms, higher ballistic energies for each raindrop, right? Um, higher mean temperatures, um, more plant growth, and more activity, generally Correct, speaking. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so you're cranking up in general, yeah.
0: Okay, so you're cranking up pretty much all of the elements of chemical weathering other than frost shattering, which isn't relevant in this environment because it's not an environment that's prone to freezing. Right, correct. Okay, fine. Right, I think I've got a reasonable understanding of the processes that you're monitoring here. So, what did you find?
1: Yes. Yeah, so we found that there will be an increase under under all the likely scenarios. So we use these RCP scenarios from the assessment report five from the IPCC um, as the most likely scenarios. And we found that the region will see approximately 73 million tons of CO2 by 2100. Approximately. 73
0: million tons of, uh, of, of chemical CO2 weathering, right?
1: Correct. Yeah. By, uh, and that's a net total by 2100.
0: And that's is that just within the caldera or is that in the wider environment
1: or what just within the caldera and and this okay. isn't and just uh, just an asterisk on this um th- there would be more of a, an impact as well because um our model does not take into account off-coastal processes so so some sediment's not going to be deposited within that environment it's going to be poured out into the ocean where it's going to be redirected by these waves into beaches and into marine environments and, and there'll be more weathering occurring there okay so, so uh,
0: l- l- let's just dive into that in a little bit more depth so what you're saying is that some of the chemical weathering happens within the cold era and within the freshwater systems within it uh, because you've got the chemical weathering that occurs once these grains have been broken down into a sufficiently small diameter that they can be attacked chemically and that can happen in the uh, Caldera itself, and in the watercourses, and then you've got a right. secondary process, which is when they have been removed from the environment and deposited on the seabed, either in the littoral zone or taken further out by ocean currents. Right. Um, then they will be still in contact with CO two and will weather chemically in situ. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So there'll be more of an impact um, once those sediments reach the marine environment as well.
0: But but you didn't monitor that. You just no. looked at that as an export function, and that's someone else's problem. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so our, our, we would have had to couple model that could project marine environments and whatnot, so um, we did not look at that.
0: Okay, so you're saying that there's 70-odd million tonnes per annum of CO2 that's being absorbed here, is that right?
1: Uh, no, that's a net total um, by 2100, so it's a very small effect. Okay,
0: so you're looking at roughly a million tonnes per year? Correct, yeah. Okay, so a million tonnes of CO2 being absorbed per year would be... Um, uh, uh, the, is that is that an is that the total weathering or is that the additional weathering caused by climate change?
1: That's the total weathering. So it'd be from from uh, a climate that wouldn't change. It'd be an increase of about thirty to fifty million tons of CO two. Okay, so you're look,
0: you're looking at a, a, a roughly doubling the weathering rate. Correct. Yeah. I mean that's a real surprise for me because you're only looking at a, as I said earlier in the podcast that you're only looking at a degree or two Kelvin of increased, um, of, um, increased temperature. And right. it's, but, but that little change in temperature. So the mean Kelvin temperature is, is it, we're roughly about, is it 208, there'd be 290 something Kelvin as a background temperature. Yeah. So you're looking at about a third of 1% increase. In that background temperature and you're doubling your withering rate i mean that's a staggering increase from a very small change right
1: right so so part of this impact comes from the sea level rise that that occurs as well and the sea level rise will work with the the increase in precipitation and as, as okay so sea level, so
0: talk me through that so sea level rise works how right well, so, what happens on the sea level rise i mean you're not looking at a huge increase in sea level are you no, you're looking at of no. the, the order of a meter or something like that
1: right yeah about that and so what happens is when this this increased erosion occurs, it starts getting transported by these river systems into the into the floodplain zones and whatnot, and and as the sea level rises, um, it starts pushing those eroded material further inland, um, and less of it reaches the ocean.
0: Okay, um, so the, the the material stays in the in the caldera. Correct. It's deposited on wetlands, um, and the it, so is it not perhaps the case that what you're seeing there is not a total change in weathering, but just a change in where that weathering occurs. So your model is actually quite unreliable in this regard, isn't it?
1: There because, are there. Yeah, there are some, the caveats. Um, but again, we're but, looking, but let me, let
0: me drill down into this because this is really important because this is your headline result. If, if your headline right. result is, is potentially out. So you're saying that there's roughly an increase of a factor of two, but you've also said that your model is not considering um, sediment export from the environment um, right. and, and, and the, the fate of the sediments that have been exported. So what may be happening is that there's a much smaller increase in the total weathering in this environment, but, but what's happening is there's a very big change in where that weathering occurs.
1: Right, and is, is that- the idea of our paper is not to, to you know, model exactly what's happening or, or say exactly, and we say this in the paper and, and say, not exactly this, we're not trying to get exact numbers here, we're just trying to get an idea of where this, this weathering will occur and if it will increase or decrease um, based okay. on the, the dynamics of the landscape.
0: I understand that. But what I'm, what I'm trying to draw you on is the effect on the weathering rate, whether it's a change in the weathering rate or a change in the weathering location. And what you're saying is that potentially quite a significant part of this doubling could actually be ascribed to a change in the location where the weathering happens. Is that right?
1: So, our model is actually able to project sediment export to the ocean. We just can't model um, what happens once it reaches the ocean. So, the off coast processes um, and transports, and so we don't know where it will end up once it reaches the ocean. We are able to quantify how much actually reaches the ocean and discern the difference between the effect being from just more sediment being deposited t- into the caldera regions. So that that is the case that there is more sediment deposited into the caldera regions because of sea level rise, but the overall effect is not simply because there's a change in location of where the sediment is being deposited. There's just more sediment being deposited because of the regional climatic shifts.
0: Fine. Okay. So you know there's a fairly significant caveat on your results, but nevertheless you found that this weathering rate you know, with, with all those limitations that we've described is, is potentially doubling. Now, let me go into a bit more depth because we're, we're obviously interested in, in the extent to which these processes can be manipulated. Um, so there's two ways that you could look at this. So you can either say, well, look, this is an example. We're using this to try and give some rough quantification of how this kind of environment works. And therefore we are looking to inform uh, Enhanced weathering um, treatments in other locations okay the other way that you could look at it is to say well we actually want to manipulate this environment and here's how we could do it not not to say that when i say you want to you're looking at this from a geophysical point of view not from a political point of view so i'm not you're not necessarily saying it's a good idea to do so but you're looking to potentially come up with a model that would enable you to do so so which of those two things is it that you are um, that you are trying to do at the moment? Um, are, you, are you trying more to inform um, the uh, process of modeling uh, erosion elsewhere, or are you trying more to see how this particular environment could usefully be amended for geoengineering purposes?
1: What we really wanted to do was just see what with the typical landscape that will increase in CO2 carbon sink abilities would look like and so maybe give give an idea of how these environments work and you know inform future research on where, where where to look to find these sort of environments
0: if you're informing enhanced weathering right in this environment what would you do to this environment to further to artificially enhance weathering obviously you're going to get an enhanced weathering effect as you've described from the changes that you are talking about within this landscape already but in addition to that you could, in theory, potentially do other stuff to this landscape to make that weathering increase. You know that's the whole concept of enhanced weathering really? so yeah it, to, to the extent that your research is able to inform this or you know if you wish to answer this from your general opinions um, alternatively, then what what could be done in this environment to improve the weathering rates what Is this something that could effectively be be manipulated, and if so how how could it be done?
1: Right. So one of the big things that's being looked at right now, like we spoke about earlier, is is providing this olivine sand to these beaches where physical weathering can occur through wave action. Um, and so one of the big questions is, you know, where do you get this material um, and, and and transport it? And how does that factor into the total CO2 uptake? And, and so, so this could even be an environment where you're, you know, providing that, that olivine directly to the beach, and so if it, I mean you, if you wanted, well, that process in, is already right happening, there.
0: right? So your research, right, your research details the environment. So let us just return to basics. So you so you've got a, a roughly a diameter thirty mile circus uh, circle, in which um, olivine is naturally weathering from the bedrock uh, and from the walls of the canyons. Um, into this uh central area where there's uh fairly unlimited chemical weathering of the olivine that the, the rate limiting step is the physical weathering not the chemical weathering right, right. so you this weather this, this material is building up in in the basin it's being weathered one would imagine sort of fairly completely uh chemically in the basin and then being exported and then you've got a a, a further step where that is transported out to sea and some of the material that's not chemically weathered, if if there is much um will then be reacted in 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 the littoral zone okay you the big the big issue here appears to be the physical breakup of that rock okay so Mm -hmm. you've got solid rock and it's in this environment and you want it to be broken up into small particles and then um, you can expose that to the atmosphere and it will weather and you'll enhance your weathering rates right so there's broadly two ways that you can do this you can do it through biological methods right so you can i don't know pour fertilizer over the environment so the trees grow more vigorously and break the rocks up or alternatively you can do it through physical methods so you might use mining blasting grinding those kind of techniques right? right so can you speak to what might be possible in this environment, regardless of any political concerns or um, ecological concerns, if you wanted to increase this weathering rate, what does your research and your wider knowledge tell us about what we could do to improve the weathering rates in these kind of environments?
1: Right, so I just want to start off with um, pointing out the fact that this is not something that our paper looks into or even talks about. Um, our, Our paper mainly just focuses on how sediment Erosion and deposition will change, and thus how more olivine will be supplied to these um, weathering inducive environments. But if you wanted to, you could, this would be a great environment where you could provide that mined olivine, like you said, like artificially start mining it, um, providing it to those beaches. Uh, and then in that way, you would have a local source of olivine in which the CO2 impact of of mining and, and transportation would be uh, about as minimal as it could get because you're already on this coastal environment with-
0: Okay, um, but with help, help me understand this. So my understanding is what's happening here is that you've got this uh, uh, 30 mile um, diameter circle, right? And you have got relatively efficient uh, chemical weathering happening in that circle. So if you were to go in, uh, you know, Just let's take the most extreme idea that we just don't care about any of the biodiversity impacts, don't care any about the landscape impact. So, what would imagine I'd imagine you'd do is to um, go in with uh, strip mine uh, the area, transport the sand away, um, and then you blast the bedrock out and um, take that bedrock. In a in a crudely ground form to the beach right right yeah okay now that um, that process would be quite energy intensive compared to just letting this happen naturally okay Correct. so although your mind is in quite a convenient location you don't have the luxury of um, being able to have this very low energy grinding process that's happening naturally for you right now okay So what is it that you would do in this environment to improve that weathering rate? How would you
1: make that work? So you're asking, um, besides the mining?
0: Well, you talk talk me through the mining process. So the the plants, the the point I'm making is the plants are already doing quite a good job of breaking this rock up. Okay. So if you, if you strip out, if you strip mine all of the, all of the soil, that has been broken up by the plants already and take it to the beach. Mm-hmm. you de- described previously a situation where the rate limiting step is primarily on the chemical weathering and not on the physical, uh, uh, sorry, primarily on the physical weathering and not on the chemical weathering. So exporting the crushed rock, the soil, out of that environment and placing it somewhere else doesn't really solve the problem. What you need to do is you need to enhance the physical weathering rates or to emulate physical weathering with machinery, okay? Right. so. To do that, in practical terms, you'd have to strip mine back to bedrock, right. a completely destructive process, yeah. You then take all of this material out, toss it in the ocean, which used to be a forest, okay? And then you'd have to do something to the bedrock because the rate-limiting step is how quickly that bedrock is broken up. So how would you enhance that process? Would you do that biologically? Would you seed it with some kind of you know, special root, plants with particularly strong roots that break up the bedrock? Or would you propose blasting with explosives or what?
1: I mean, personally, I would not propose any of that. Um, But if we're talking about how this area could plausibly work as an artificially enhanced uh, silicate weathering environment, you would want to, yeah, you would want to blast this area um, to provide that olivine sand to the beach or to these weatherable environments within uh, the floodplain.
0: Okay. So you're describing there a process where if it was seen as being appropriate to do so, and you know nobody's directly advocating this, just to, to <laughs> clarify, but, but what you would do is you'd get trucks in there, you would scrape up the um, the soil with a dragline excavator, you'd go down to bedrock, you'd blast that bedrock, right. and then you'd put um, hammer mills in to grind that bedrock further and then spread that out either in coastal environments or in similar floodplains, right? That, that would be, broadly speaking, what you're talking about so it's like a it's equivalent to an open cast coal mine is roughly the process you're you're explaining yes right? yeah, yeah okay um so obviously hugely destructive very controversial okay right. um two two comments um uh, or questions come from that so firstly why would you start in an area which has already got high levels of natural erosion anyway why wouldn't you start in an area which has got low erosion because if you're going to you know if, if you have to help it along with explosives. And, and hammer mills to grind this rock up then right. what is the point of doing so in an area which is already weathering quite aggressively anyway right Can you touch so, on that first?
1: so as we said earlier in our study um the the weathering is this time scale for it to be significant is, is millions of years as we know how weathering occurs so this so this the idea of enhancing this process through mining and whatnot so you um, could get
0: orders of magnitude increases, right? Yeah,
1: correct. So, I mean, so did, did
0: you put it in perspective, in perspective, you said 73 million tons in a century.
1: Yeah, in Between a now and the
0: end of the century. Okay, so yeah. you're looking at roughly a million tons a year. And so that's equivalent to um, uh, a, a city of uh, the, the emissions of, uh, roughly people emit around 10 tons per capita, um, and, they, um, uh, and a city of 100,000 people might emit a million tons per year so you right. look at a small city, something like on the scale of Cambridge and, the hin- and its hinterland, um, emitting of the order of a million tons a year. And you, this large caldera, 30 miles by 30 miles, would be able to offset the emissions of a city roughly the size of Cambridge.
1: Right. So, so be- to put it in perspective, of, of in Australia, they, they emit about 400 million tons a year. So it'd be about each? a quarter percentage of, of what they emit as a country. Okay. Uh,
0: so just in this cal- just in this caldera, right?
1: Right. So it's a very minimal. Uh,
0: okay, fine. So you're 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 suggesting that this slow weathering caldera, in, in principle, could be strip mined ground up and then uh, used as a source of olivine for um, uh, f- for this process. And and you would get what kind of scale of increase? You mean you're talking about ten x increase? You talking about thousand X increase? What, you know, are you talking millions and millions increase?
1: Again, um, I just want to reiterate that this is not something that our research looks into or the paper talks about. Um, we, we are not even proposing this site as, as a, a site where you would enhance uh, weathering artificially. We are simply saying that this this is a site where you can actually observe the weathering rate of these mafic sediments in in nature in a natural environment and as well as that this is this is a region that you can look at and see that naturally this enhanced weathering um occurs due to climate change but um the weathering rate of olivine in, in nature itself is unknown so the thing that we are also saying with this study is that you so need you to quantify it. We use uh, rates and in, in laboratory rates, but obviously okay, they're right. much more complicated in, in nature. So, and no one, no one has observed that yet. So we're. But, we're but let's say it's
0: a million tons a, a year, year, right? Somewhere. You've got a million tons a year of weathering from this from right. this region. Okay, are you expecting that that could be increased to, you know, two million tons a year, or or thousand million tons a year? Well, I mean, roughly, where, where would you be on that scale?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, I, I'm not totally sure. It depends on you know, how, much, how much olivine you're supplying, where you're supplying it, um, and, and again, the weathering rate. It, it would definitely increase significantly, but um, it just depends on the process that, that okay. would be implemented. But
0: when you say significantly, I mean, a significant increase might be, you know, plus minus 10%, but are you thinking plus minus minus a 1,000 times? I mean, it, but the impression I get is that you are imagining that this could be a very dramatically enhanced process. Is that correct?
1: yeah i mean there are studies that that say enhancing olivine weathering could pull millions to billions of tons of carbon dioxide outside
0: i understand that but just looking at this environment specifically i'm not looking at the global olivine resource i'm talking about the environment that you're looking at are you talking i mean that this would be a hugely destructive process you're basically talking about the total destruction of not only the ecosystem in this area but also the physical environment as well so even if you were to then um uh, attempt to reseed this uh, area; it would have been so fundamentally changed that the same plants could no longer grow there. Right? So you're right. looking at a, a very, very highly destructive process. To, to, to merely doubling the weathering rate, so it, it removes two small cities worth of um, greenhouse gases, it would would seem to be a price probably not worth paying. But if you could destroy a small forest um, and get rid of a thousand cities worth of climate change then you'd be thinking well that's you know quite possibly worth doing right, right. so um can you give us an idea of what the maximum amount of um uh, weathering that would be available from this environment if you you know went in hammer and tongs at it and did all of the uh, mechanical grinding and strip mining and everything like that that could conceivably be done what what would just be a rough idea i'm not looking to hold you to this but are we talking you know? three orders of magnitude are we talking you know a 50 percent increase what
1: yeah i mean i'm it's a total guess here but i mean i i would assume you could you could significantly increase it up maybe maybe three x four x times just in in this small region if you okay. completely utilized all the area um all the weather involved okay.
0: i mean that that so, the, so that, that, that that's that's a significant increase but it's not you know, you're not talking about like a transformational increase, are you? You're not talking, you know, hundreds of thousands of times increase, right?
1: Right, and but so- the, the thing is, you have this, uh, that this, what we're saying is, uh, well, not what we're saying, but what um, we're talking about right now um, is is um, a supply of this olivine sand, right? And so the question is, you know, does the transport, is the mining, is it worth it in, in terms of CO2 reductions? And, and here you have an environment where you have tons of basalt, tons of um, olivines uh, that you could grind up and yeah, it's
0: just sitting around and you can right. start, you know, it's, it's, it's accessible and it's in a, an environment where there's a lot of chemical weathering right. available to you because you've got that heat and the wet and the water, which are an essential component of that chemical weathering process. Right. So transport would
1: be min- minimal in that. Situation. Yeah, tra-
0: transport minimal. You don't, you know, and you, you, you don't have to take it far, but, Talk to me about the ecosystem impact. So there's a lot right. of olivine in Amman, for example, and then that's a desert environment, uh, much lower biodiversity. Why would you want to go and tear up a rainforest um, in Australia to go and do this when <laughs> you can um, mine it uh, from environments that are you know, very low in – I'm, you know, I'm not decrying those environments. They, they, they're an important part of the Earth system, but right. they, they certainly don't have the biodiversity loss effects that you – would imagine from you know tearing a hole in um, the side of eastern Australia.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I would personally not recommend it. Um, I think there would also be huge trade-offs with the, the environment itself um, being able to sequester carbon, and so you would even lose more pros and cons there. So I mean, a, okay, yeah,
0: so let show me through. So Oman is quite a hot place, right? And right. Once you're in, once you're in the sea it doesn't matter anymore, does it? Because you can't be any wetter than you are when you're underwater, right? right. So explain to me why Amman, and with, with its, one would imagine, reduced biodiversity, I'm not, not an expert on the biodiversity of Amman or indeed anywhere else, um, but one would imagine that mining Amani, is that right? I think it is Armani, um, olivines would be less damaging to the ecosystem than well you know the net damage to the global ecosystem would be less severe in a desert environment than it would be in a rainforest in coastal australia so why why why, what advantage does your area of study have as a source for this material
1: yeah i mean it's just widely available and it's it's right within these weatherable environments. I mean, our study is not saying we should, we should mine this area or anything like that. We're, okay. we're saying this is an environment you should observe to see the effective nature of, of this weathering impact. And in that way, you can sort of extrapolate and see how enhancing that process would work in a and
0: where would you where would you put this material because you say that you know the, the rate limiting step is the physical erosion right so the tree roots and to some extent the impact of the rain will will cause the environment to the uh, the rock in the environment to physically break up okay right. and that's the rate limiting step not the chemical weathering so the, the the main thing to do is to get at this rock to break it up as quickly as possible and then to just transport it some other place where mm-hmm. the fact that you've got a hot wet environment will encourage the dissolution um, and reaction of these these minerals mm. um, so where are you proposing to take the material out of the cold um and, and weather it in a terrestrial environment or would it all go onto the beaches if it goes onto the beaches how far do you have to spread it because obviously you can 't just put you know a hundred meter deep pile and expect it to weather all at the bottom you'd have to um, you can only um, uh, weather it effectively where you 've got a kind of turbidity zone in the the top layer of um, sediment under the sea, uh, where it's being moved around enough to get uh, wetted with additional carbon dioxide-rich um, uh, water. So, uh, if you were to mess around with this environment, um, then where would you where would you actually put the products?
1: Yeah, so that's that's one of the big questions of this whole process. Um, our paper does not take on this at all. So. This is just us talking, I guess, but... um, Yeah, yeah, fine. So, um, yeah, so I guess that's what Project Vesta is doing, right? So we can come back to Project Vesta. Um, They think the best place to do this is to supply beaches with this olivine sand. So basically, it's just a beach still. It's sand. It's green sand, so it'll look a little odd. And in that way, the most effective weathering, they think, would be this wave action that would weather this olivine that's on the beach and then supply it directly to the ocean. So wouldn't you I
0: understand. I understand that. The right. question I was asking is about the logistics of moving it. So you're saying that the, the advantage yeah, of the, the caldera question. is you've got large amounts of olivine sand that you can pull out of the caldera and put to chemical weather elsewhere. And by doing so, you can expose yet more of the basin to, um, uh, to physical weathering, which will then produce more sand, right? So um, that process I get. What I'm trying to understand is that the, when you emplace that material where it is supposed to weather, There's a limit on how deep it can be, because otherwise you can just leave it in a big pile it doesn't have access to. There's no infiltration from rainwater. Um, There's no, uh, if it's too deep, there's no um, turbidity from um, wave action uh, or ocean currents. It just sits there and it's not very well, um, not aerated because it's under the water, but you get the the idea. Uh, Do you not run up into logistical limits Quite early on, when you 're removing so much material from this environment that it becomes expensive or impractical i mean it 's thirty miles across in each direction, uh, and if you start removing meters and meters and meters of this material a year and then spread it on beaches, a beach is a linear feature right so right. You, you could imagine sp- you know may- maybe spreading out out one hundred meters into the sea, maybe two three hundred meters i don 't know exactly how long, but the point i'm making is that you quickly run up to a lot of linear meterage of beach you know you're looking at hundreds of miles of beach that you have to be dumping this material on so the logistical advantages surely fade if you're moving this material you know 100 200 300 400 miles up the coast just to
1: spread it certainly yes i agree completely and um and i don't have an answer for that i don't know and i think nobody has an answer for that and that's why we we need to study this in the natural environment and that's why we're proposing in our papers okay. that this needs so to be studied.
0: What, where I've got to with this is that you've you've given us an indication of the, uh, you've identified an, uh, an interesting area, you've described the geology um, and biogeography of the area in a, in a summary form but quite comprehensively um, within that. You've explained how your research has looked at the Uh, Weathering, both physical and chemical, in this um, environment, you have drawn our attention to the limiting uh, uh, aspects of your research in that you, your the the numerical changes that you're reporting are confounded by the uh, changes to mineral transport and thus the location of the chemical weathering that occurs. You've explained how the sea level rise is causing the uh a restraint to that export that can uh result in more material weathering inside that environment and therefore being caught by your analysis and you've drawn attention to the uh m- mechanical logistical and ecosystem challenges of enhancing the weathering rates that you talked about in an artificial fashion so do you feel that you've given us a fairly good whistle-stop tour of the paper and your knowledge on the subject is that am i do i have you broadly right here
1: yeah correct yeah
0: okay cool so i think the big takeaway for me is that these this olivine sand is not a benign process to extract it right you you're looking at something which is going to be highly destructive to the coastal environment and there are if you're picking this as an environment where it's not necessarily optimal to do this work, but it's certainly, you know, a promising site. And you've you've picked up an example of where this is a, you know, you're you're talking about something which is akin to the total destruction of a caldera, which has been there for 15 million years. So that's not a small um, uh, thing to be asking people to sign off, right? Right, uh, so I
1: I just want to make, the, everyone clear that that this is we weren't proposing any of this in the paper or anything um this so is an paper-
0: advocacy i get it and i understand that your research doesn't focus on this but what i'm saying right. is were we to apply your research and use it to inform enhanced weathering what i'm trying to do is simply draw listeners attention to the fact that this um what could sound like a very you know sam doesn't sound like a very destructive thing it sounds like quite a benign thing you can go and buy Quite a lot of it we use quite a lot of it it doesn't isn't something that people normally associate with destruction in the way that they might associate rainforest timber with destruction or you know cattle farming with destruction sand seems to be a almost you know environmentally neutral thing but what you're saying here is that it really isn't and if we were to look at expanding this um on a large scale there are very very significant ecosystem impacts as well as not non-trivial financial costs from so doing is that a fair summary of how we could politically apply the uh hard physical science in your paper
1: correct yeah so we there's definitely caveats to um you know producing that sand and and transporting it and And so it needs to be heavily looked into before it's actually implemented in in the real world.
0: Okay, how frustrating. Another easy win and solution for climate change Uh, turns out to be uh, anything but easy. So I wanted to ask you about the peer review journey. So um, you you submitted this paper. Was this your first choice of journal? Um, Or did you um, uh, you you have a, a long... Argument about where to submit it and did you get rejected from anywhere else or did you just go in first time and get sailed through peer review?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. So this started as my thesis. Um, it was a bit different. We were just uh, modeling the impacts of the region to climate change um, and we initially submitted it and then we got rejected and we that's when Deepmar started talking to someone from Project Vesta and so we sort of got the idea to sort of reframe the study, restart um, analysis and look at how the, the area can act as a, a carbon sink.
0: So you basically had to do a, a bit of a fundamental rework on the paper, right? And
1: yeah, we basically yeah, we redid the study a little bit with a different perspective.
0: Okay, uh, can you tell me about the co-authoring team and uh, how that came about, you know, who you were working with and did you start off with all your co-authors in one place um, or or did you add them as you brought your merry band of followers throughout the land and people joined you as they uh, liked the sound of your drums and singing?
1: Yeah so I I started this study um, studying abroad at the University of Sydney. Um, I was with the geoscience team so we just we worked together to come up with this idea and so I worked with uh, one of the geoscience professors Professor Dietmar Moller and then another professor Dr. Tristan Sales. He was actually the uh, developer of this model, and so we just started as this team in, in Sydney, and then I, I completed it as I completed my undergrad over the next year um, back at my home university. And uh, yeah, we eventually published, and here we are.
0: So you didn't you didn't add anybody to the team. You were all there at the start, and you worked. Yeah. There, and you didn't you didn't add extra authors because I find it often when papers come back from peer review, they um, often have to expand the author team as you identify areas of expertise that are lacking for the original author team
1: right yeah no we uh we stuck with our whole team the whole way
0: and what's what does the future um hold for you what do you expect to be doing after this paper
1: yeah so i just started my phd program at the university of california irvine um in earth system science so i'm part of
0: so was this was this paper part of your msc then or
1: what? no just undergraduate so i just i hop straight into my phd program
0: Oh, right. Okay. So you managed to get a paper done at undergraduate level. That's quite rare because most people don't normally start their, um, uh, publishing journey until they do, uh, masters at least. Um, and if not, um, start the PhD program. So you're a bit early for that, aren't you? So it was that, is that regarded as quite an unusual achievement or, uh, um, Yeah, yeah I know a few from... other
1: undergrads who, who were able to do it, but um, I was lucky enough to meet the right people and do the right work with, uh, with them. So yeah, yeah I was you, pretty
0: what, lucky. What, what what drew you to doing academic research as a kind of spare time activity? I mean, I, I couldn't wait to get out of lectures and stuff. When I was a undergrad, I just wanted to go um, <laughs> hang out with my mates and have fun. Right. I didn't want to go and right. waste time in the lab.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just I, I just love research. Um, I know it's what I want to do in my career. And I knew I wanted to go get my PhD for though. it. I mean, don't get me wrong,
0: I like, I like research, but I didn't like it when I was an undergrad. <laughs> it took me a long time. I, think, I don't know whether, whether I've become more interested in research or whether the rest of my life has just got a bit more boring. But <laughs> relatively speaking, it seems more interesting now than it did.
1: Right, yeah. Um, I think a lot of it, too, was that I know I want to get my PhD and
0: um, I know it helped
1: me. Yeah, if that's the, the, the path you want to know.
0: take, then that obviously is the right way to go. So in terms of your longer term career ambitions, I mean, you, you, you're you going to get your PhD and I guess you're going to be seeking some kind of research work because you said that's your passion. So right. but in terms of the actual subject material that you're looking at, uh, that you're interested in looking at, uh, what uh, are you going to... Um, Actually, be doing uh, in the longer term if you get your own way. I mean, obviously, you have to take what comes when in, in academia. But where do you see yourself researching?
1: Right. Yeah. So um, I'm in a lab that studies uh, ecosystem services, and so what I'll be doing within that lab is studying how climate change impacts ecosystem services on on different scales, and um, sort of trying to show how that how that's relevant to societies that depend on those services.
0: Can you give me an example?
1: Yeah, so say you have people in South Africa who depend on firewood uh, local firewood, and so okay. maybe modeling how the or mapping that that dependence and where those where that firewood's coming from initially, and then you can use a climate model downscaled climate model to project how how climate change will impact that area and how it will impact that ecosystem service and then you can sort of value put that put a value estimate on that and say you know how x amount of people are going to be impacted by this and under this scenario oh, it's going to cost so that's
0: the interaction hours. between human and physical geography then you're you're looking at modeling the uh, environment society interactions
1: yeah correct yeah
0: that's quite interesting that's an interesting for of research and you, you see that you know being your career path in the longer term right
1: yeah definitely
0: okay cool so correct. um well Thank you very much um, for coming on the show. One thing that I wanted to ask just before I wrapped up, there's burning little question in my mind. How much of what you were doing was field work? I mean, is most of your monitoring uh, of these weathering rates done by sampling the material in the environment or is most of it done by, you know, lab studies and computer modeling and computational fluid dynamics and things like that?
1: It's pretty much all lab study. Um, We use field studies um, within our study. But we don't, okay. we don't actually go out and measure anything.
0: Okay, fine. Well, that, on that one little point, I feel slightly better informed. Um, so thank you for coming on the show. Um, just to finish off by our customary rejection of your paper. Um, and we look forward to hearing more from you and your collaborators um, in uh, the near future. Great. All thank the best you, in your Andrew. career. Thank you very much.
1: Appreciate it. Bye.